So I'm now speaking with the, the creator of Almighty Voice and his wife, Daniel David Moses, and it's a pleasure to finally have this opportunity, Daniel, to sit down and speak with you in this capacity uh, as two professionals in, in this area. You're, uh, I, I always remember hearing about Almighty Voice and his wife, and I remember hearing about you um, writing this and your writing ability. It's always been, uh, you've always been uh, in my mind, uh, and I remember hearing that, that you've always been a, a playwright that is worthy uh, to check out and know your, your name is known in the industry. Almighty Voice and his wife. Earlier when you were talking about this, you talked about how what you didn't want to write anymore, and that when you were thinking of this, when you finally sat down, the, the, the play sort of, I guess, wrote itself in, in a couple of weeks. Um, can you take me back to that and, and why, how you found the story and, and why you felt it was important for you to write it? Well, it was a story that puzzled me when I, I first came across it. Um, this was... I guess my first year after university, I was working at the Woodland Cultural Center as the researcher in the library. Uh, we still did things by paper and mail. By then, someone had written a letter asking for information about Almighty Voice. I didn't know anything, but in our library, I must have found six or seven different versions of the story with, within like a couple hours. Uh, and when I read it, I just didn't understand why it had happened. So I, I realized that my um, my ignoring of history, uh, I felt like I'd been very sheltered from history uh, by my family and growing up on Six Nations. Um, I mean, it wasn't until I was an adult that I, 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 I realized that my grandmother had been in the Mohawk, the Mush Hole. Um, so so that I, I, started, I started investigating and tried to place when the story happened, uh, and where in the history of Canada, and I realized it was after, just after the Riel Rebellion, and that, that kind of explained a lot of like why things were so bad for, for the characters. Um, and I, I just, um, but, but the story began, began to obsess me. Um, most of the versions in the mainstream of the story were the story of a renegade Indian, and it ends badly. <laughs> uh, I was resisting uh, telling a tragic story. Uh, I, I had been looking at Greek tragedies, and they talked about Greek tragedies as, as, as a mechanism to maintain stability in a culture. Um, and and I, I thought, no, I, I don't want to keep doing the same darn thing where the Indian ends up dead. I, 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 I want to write a story where, where, you know, you can find human joy. So I, it took me a while to figure it out. And, and was it sort of an aha moment for you when it finally came to you and then it, it just sort of wrote itself after that? Um, I don't think I really was that conscious of what I was doing. I, I just found a whole bunch of material that I thought, this seems right, I'll try this. And when, when I sat down to do it, it, it did just sort of happen. But, but I, 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 had, I had followed my instincts. 
uh, ra rather than be totally rational about the way I put the play together, I just went with the feeling of it, and that's that's what allowed me to 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 like change gears during intermission. <laughs> so, it's a two-act play. Um, when did that become clear to you that it was going to be in these two parts, and that the first and second act would be radically different from each other? Well, originally I had strategized that because I didn't want to tell the whole darn story again, <laughs> that I would just end the first act before the death happened. Uh, I mean, when it came to actually writing the story, the just just the whole mechanism of the story took over, and and I couldn't resist it. But but my original strategy had meant that. Uh, rather than show the death, I was going to use the second act to show all those people who were chasing Almighty Voice, all the settlers, the farmers, the postmaster, the, the Mounties, the soldiers, because I really wanted to th know what they thought they were doing. Um, so I had this image in my head that, okay, all these white people characters, I work with Indians. My Indians will have to play white people. But then uh, we had done a lot of work in clowning at Neighbors, so I thought, okay, whiteface, that kind of works. Um, and it, it was just one of those images that stuck in my head. Um, and I just thought, like, whiteface, what's that about? And then I thought, blackface? And that took me into the whole minstrel show tradition, and I realized that there was a North American theatrical tradition that implicitly racist, but also like very theatrical, very entertaining in a nasty sort of way. Uh, I, I was quite taken by it, and I, I just thought, I want to do that. I want to play with that. I, um, the, 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 the resulting two-act play sort of uh, feels like it's a very North American creation. It does theater as, as, as it can be done in North America. I, I really felt like, like I, I did something for the new world. <laughs> now, you mentioned about how you, you first discovered this story, you know, when you were working at the Woodland Cultural Center, long before there was uh, such things as Google and those kind of things, of course. So a lot has changed since the last time, you know, this play was done with Janny in the, in, in, in the role. Uh, do, you, do you see a difference in terms of how the play might be received or uh, a difference in, in any other way between then and now? I think people are probably better educated just about the nature of theatre now because when I first did it, most people said I couldn't do it, I, that I broke a rule by, by changing styles midway through the play. Um, more pe people are more sophisticated now theatrically, uh, but probably more important, uh, there's been a, a lot of education going on. The TRC has happened. Uh, People in Canada no longer are blissfully ignorant of their own history, uh, and a lot of them want to know it. Uh, when the play was first and one of the reviews said, oh, this is only about stuff that will concern Native people, uh, but now, now it's like people realize that if Canada is to have any moral standing in the world, they have to admit to their faults. It's a character-building exercise. <laughs>
So, and how does that make you feel now to have this this opportunity, have this done again, then and then and then now? I just feel very lucky that I've lived to see it happen. <laughs> That's a long time ago the play was first done, and and it it it, it was an era where you know with with results like that of confusion and ignorance I just thought okay we've got a lot of work to do and I mean I spent a long time for instance working on a project with Oxford University Press where we just pointed out look there are all these Aboriginal writers in the country that you should be paying attention to and and I you know I I, I, I helped found indigenous literature study <laughs> That's great. So, you know, you mentioned um, how some of the things that have changed, you mentioned the TRC, and of course, most recently, uh, we're in this, the midst of this election right now, and what, behold, what comes out of the, the election, but this uh, Trudeau and blackface. So it, it kind of brings it full circle again once for you. I'm just wondering, what, what's, your, what's your take on that, and what do you think that will, that will add to this? Well, I, I, I guess maybe it... it can help white people reflect on their own culture because clearly that that's something that's still alive that that sort of dressing up is, is still alive among people with with more money than sense and i'm just wondering if if there's any other differences or or similarities you see within the original uh, time that this was performed some 30 years ago and and doing this now in today's society Well, I, the, the support I had from the theaters, the, the theaters that, that wanted to do the play, really committed to it, that, that they saw the theatricality of it, that, that it was like a work of art, and it, it was worth doing because of that. Um, even though they, they were sometimes treading ground they weren't sure of, but, but I, I think that that has still been there, that, that, that pe people have come to recognize that the, the play is worthwhile. It, 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 it adds to the world we live in. Uh, Daniel, um, how is it for you um, working with Janie again? She originally worked on this and, and was, uh, played the role of, of the wife, Almighty Voice and his wife, and now she's in the, the helm of, of directing it. Uh, what's that like for you to, to be able to, to have some familiarity with the people you're working with? I, I was thrilled when I heard that she was going to do it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I pay attention to other people's careers, and as she's become known over the last decade as a director as well as an actor-singer, I, I just and and like like I, I've seen a lot of the work she's done recently. Um, she has a one-woman storytelling piece called Prophecy Fog that is just so deep and funny. I, I just you know, she's a major artist. And I, I just feel lucky to, to have her on my side. Great. Now, uh, you mentioned career. And, of course, uh, your own career has, has managed to evolve over that time. You've written other pieces. And uh, I believe you're, you're still at the University of Ottawa. You have tenure at the University of Ottawa. Do you not? Actually, I am retired <laughs> from Queen's University. Uh, I am now a professor emeritus from the... School of Music and Drama at Queen's University. Well, congratulations. Now, what does, what does that mean exactly? It means I get to keep my email. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's congratulations on all that, and of course, all the success that you've had over over the years, and congratulations on this play being done again. Um, I wish you all the best with this, and I hope it it brings you renewed success and, and attention to the things that you originally wanted it to bring attention to. And uh, I'm just wondering, is there anything else you can think of that you feel is important to either mention for the audience, what they might take away from this, or or what you wanted to bring? or originally uh, thought in your process of, of writing this play? I guess I just want people to come and take the chance. It's, it's, it, it, it's uh, what I, I think one of the descriptions of the play talked about, about sort, of, sort of having a pleasant ride in the first act and then suddenly we turn the corner real sharp and, <laughs> and head off and madly in another direction and enjoy it. <laughs> It, it, it can be a little disturbing, but it's also funny as heck. All right, great. Uh, Wanishi, thanks so much. Thanks, Dave. So uh, I'm here speaking with Janie Lazon, and she is the director of Almighty Voice. Uh, Janie, this is, um, I guess, a, a full circle for you in some ways. Uh, you, drew, you were in this play... A, 30 years ago I heard and uh, now you're you and I heard you also wanted to direct this so this this must be quite exciting for you to to be able to be in the the seat of directing this play absolutely and uh, I just want to start by saying that um, the the beautiful the beautiful title of the play is actually Almighty Voice and his wife because she's she's actually uh, such an important component to the story uh, so uh, in 1991, Billy Marasti and I did this play, the world premiere at the Great Canadian Theatre Company, and I just fell in love with it then. It's just such a rich and beautiful piece of poetry and um, just an incredible way of telling the story, the way that Daniels uh, envisioned the, theatrica- the theatricality of it. And I, I actually wanted to be in it again. I, I wanted another opportunity to um, to be in it. But then, you know, I just got kind of older and older and older, so that didn't happen. But I also knew that I wanted to direct it, and I, I did uh, uh, bring the play to Yvette Nolan at um, Native Earth and, and say, this is what I would, I would, I think you should do this play, and if and I would love to... I would love to direct it. Um, that never happened then, but I'm really excited to be doing it now. When when did you take it to Native Earth? How long ago was that? Oh boy, that would have been uh, 2005 or six ish, I think. Um, when I was really seriously trying to um, open up my directorial career, which has taken a while. <laughs> and congratulations, by the way. But listen, the thing is, though, 30 years. Is, is a fair amount of time and of course a lot has changed in that time so when you looked at this the script again what jumped out at you that had changed between that time and now well there's certainly a little bit more awareness about residential school which certainly helps because then the context of the play has a wider base of knowledge for our non-indigenous uh, artists uh, p- uh, patrons who are coming to see it um, and so they're they're a little bit more informed as well, which is really really helpful. They've done some research, perhaps maybe educate educated themselves a bit more, which is also very helpful. Um, uh, so that's been great. Um, and then equally so, there's so many things that haven't changed. So then, what will people? What do you hope people will take away from this? What what do you think that your eye is going to be able to bring to this play and that the audience can see? 
What I what I realize also about myself, but um, as I look at the world and, and navigate this idea of reconciliation and what the crazy word is and what it really means, what's the, what's the action of it? I think it requires us all to look at our unconscious bias. And what this play does is requires us to look deeper and deeper and deeper into our unconscious bias. And, and uh, that's why it's so brilliant that the second half is all done in vaudeville because that vehicle, vaudeville was also a vehicle for, um, uh, for, ha- for having conversations about politics and racism, and, but all under the guise of comedy and slapstick comedy. So it allows us to look at that, laugh at it, and then realize what we're laughing at. So the other thing, of course, you have uh, you have, have uh, indigenous actors playing the roles, and it was originally as well with you and Billy Narasti. Um, but again, going back to that time change, what do you think these actors are seeing in this that perhaps you guys uh, weren't able to see at that time? Um, well, interestingly enough, there's actually more access to information, um, although, uh, yeah, because Google didn't... <laughs> didn't exist back then it's so scary to say that oh my god um so we have way more access to research information to um archival information which has been really really helpful for me especially as a director in terms of um you know creating the knowledge of of just what the what that journey was that they went through that's all been super helpful for all of us um and what's also come more to light is the fact that, as, as uh, Daniel David Moses talks about, is that um, oftentimes in the um, Northwest Mounted Police reports, which is where most of the historical information has come from on Almighty Voice, not the story from the community, but the story from these reports, his wife is never mentioned, or she's mentioned as the girl. And... Um, and again, I think it speaks to the fact that cross-referencing those reports, uh, the reason why we're not clear about what Almighty Voice really went through or the truth of the story is because even their internal reports conflicted each other. So they told the story that they wanted to tell at the time. And now that we have access to all of those, some of those reports anyway, um, I, I really took a look at what, uh, <laughs> how much they lied for themselves. Yes. So, uh, it's a two-act play. The first and second act are very different from each other. Um, did you have a chance to speak with Daniel on this prior to, you know, or when you, when you found out you'd be directing and, and talk about it, taking an approach or, or, or anything about that and how it had changed or in his mind or, or what you might be bringing forward? Yeah, we did meet, which I think is really an essential part of, you know, if I can meet with the playwrights that, uh, the plays that I'm directing, it's, it's, I think it's very helpful to kind of crawl inside their brain and think what they're thinking. And also to say, hey, is this, is this going to be okay for you, this idea that I have? Um, and what I loved about what Daniel was saying about the second act is that really the second act takes place here and now at this moment, and it gives us an opportunity um, to, again, uh, contemplate what that idea of reconciliation means let's look at the material let's really delve into what's continued to be said the word chief is still used today you know and and we and we we need we need to take a closer look at that so that was great and then there was information that i that i hadn't placed which was really great to know that the second act actually takes place in um 
uh, in the residential school. So I, I, had, I knew that it took place in Duck Lake. I knew that it took place kind of in the community centre, but I didn't realise that Daniel had actually envisioned it as the community centre in the residential school, which gave me a, a whole new mind-blowing relationship to what's actually going on in the second act with White Girl. Okay, so uh, the other thing I'm wondering about is, is going back to when you were, you were playing the role, acting, and now directing, uh, what... What do you think that gives you uh, in terms of, of speaking to your actors? Uh, you know, things that you could want to, to, to help them see or help bring out that maybe you, you thought, I don't want to say missed, but, but you know, maybe, maybe you felt now you see these, these things differently or stronger. Yeah, absolutely. It's been such a, a great team effort with all of us. Like, I've brought forth um, my my intimate knowledge of the script and my um, all of this, this the discoveries that I made as an actor. Um, but oh, Michaela and, and uh, JD have come up with uh, like they've just got, well, how about this and how about that? I was like, I'd never thought of that, right? So we've made some amazing discoveries together by putting all of our thoughts together and uh, really analyzing and, and playing. We, we've been playing a lot on our feet. I think that's also really, really super important that the information comes from our bodies as well as our minds. If there's uh, one thing that you would like an audience to perhaps take away from, from seeing this play, uh, what comes to mind for you? I think it's about, um, it has to do with uh, our image. Uh, what I call images of Indians in the 1970s. There was a, um, a television series out of Seattle called Images of Indians, which then prompted a series of other movies and things like that. But really how our image has been so controlled by media, by colonialism, by government. Um, I would like people to walk away with a different image of us, a different perception of us uh, as a people and our capacity for love and our capacity for, for feel, feeling deep and grand emotion and, and, for, um, and to give a better understanding of why Almighty Voice was fighting for the things that he was fighting for, his honor, his ancestors, his traditional ways, his wife, that those were, that those were the reasons why he was, was running and fighting for the things that he believed in not because he was bad and lazy and and a renegade was because he was starving <laughs> you know and and uh, i just really appreciate another opportunity to paint that picture so that people can go oh that image that we think of when we think of uh, first nations metis and inuit people is we we have to replace that with a different image Jenny, thanks so much for this. And all the best and continued uh, success in the future. Always, Dave. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> all right. And uh, I'm now speaking with uh, one of the actors from Almighty Voice and his wife, the person who is actually playing the voice of Almighty Voice, and that is James Dallas Smith. He is an actor uh, hailing from Six Nations, and it's a pleasure to meet him and also uh, see a little bit of the play that we, that we saw this morning and to have a chance to meet you in person, to, uh, hear a little bit about uh, your story. And, uh, and how, uh, I guess, you know, it, it was really interesting Call you JD because that's what everybody likes yes, to call you. I really found it interesting, JD, that you, you you showed a lot of reverence for Daniel in his play when you were speaking about it prior to uh, getting into this this morning. Sure. Um, for me, it's I'm 45 years old now, so I've done this for 
20, 25 years and you come across a lot of different pieces of literature and usually when you approach a project you think, I have a pretty clear idea of what this is and what I want to do with it. And I thought that was the case with Daniel's play and got here and realized there was just so many more facets that I hadn't thought through, I guess, uh, which is great. It's always pleasant to be surprised, but to be surprised so many times in the script, like, oh, there's, I didn't know that was there and, and that. And my journey is very similar to yours in that I, my cultural sort of discovery came later in my life and it filled a really big hole for me. So to find his play at this time in my own life, and I've got a young son now, so I, I had a lot of questions myself and this, it was great to sort of discover a lot of the answers going through this story. Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Of course. Um, one of the best things I can take is I, uh, one of the, an elder I spoke with talked about, I've always struggled with self-worth issues, um, shame a little bit, sort of what I deserve, what I don't deserve. And an elder told me, you need to learn to set down that pain. It's not yours. If you have a family member that survived residential school, they may have accidentally taught you that, but it's not yours to carry anymore. And you have to learn to distinguish between which pain is yours and which pain isn't. And that's exactly what Almighty Voice does in the second act. He helps white girl rediscover herself. He's like, you, you've taken on so many more things that aren't yours. You need to set them down and, find, and discover what's ours again. So learning what was ours is, is, is new to me. Just I don't know if it was the same for you, but growing up, I, I couldn't articulate the questions that I had. I just knew something was missing. And, and I think my father had a very difficult childhood uh, growing up on the reserve, and he didn't want to now as a dad, I get that. You don't want to put your kids to any disadvantage or make them suffer. So this discovery through this play, is, it's a gentle way of, of learning about my culture and also a lovely and heartbreaking way to learn about the strength of it as well. But I guess that also gives you something that you can, you can bring to it that other people wouldn't know or see. I hope so, yes. I mean... There is a lot more discovery for me than another actor, perhaps. Um, there's some differences, too, because this is a Cree man and I'm Mohawk. And, of course, you know that, that oh, you're all just indigenous people. It's, no, it's not quite like that. We do have some, some subdivisions. Uh, so there is an onus taking on that story because that's not entirely mine. But there is obviously much larger indigenous cultural things. And, yeah, the... It's all, it helps in the second act as well because he has to figure out who he is before he can help her. He's like, who am I again? Didn't I die? What am I doing here? Why am I in this new place? So yeah, that resonates with me a lot because those are very recent questions for me. So it really, it's a lovely place to, I, I just I feel like this project's been handed to me at a beautiful time in my life and it's an incredible opportunity to work with these people and to have Daniel's words. I do revere them. I think they're beautiful and I can't wait to share this story. I've, I've not been this excited about something in my life, in my professional career. I just personally and professionally, it's been gratifying. So I'm really excited. And of course, you know that, that Janie was in this originally. I do. <laughs> some 30 years ago. Yes. So uh, what was that like to be able to work with a director who was in the, the original performance? I've, again, a first for me. Like, I've never had that experience. Like, and, and you don't want to abuse it. You want to sort of say what did you do here last time? Because maybe that's not what Jenny, she's had 25 years to say, you know, I, like, I know what I liked and what I didn't like about that production and what I'd like to do differently this time. So it was a finding a balance of what she 
was able to bring forward and listen to her. But of course we have questions. And Daniel was there for a lot of the original production as well. He was in the room sort of watching. So we've gotten to pick both of their brains and say, you know, we're a little confused about this. Is And it's great to have those voices because you can't ask Shakespeare or Moliere, what did you mean here anymore, right? You have to just interpret it. And there's a challenge and a joy to that. But to actually say, no, really, <laughs> really, what did you mean? It's great because sometimes, Daniel, the, there's four or five different meanings that are possible and it depends on your interpretation. And he'll say, well, which, what do you think? Which of those do you think is most right? Uh, but the, the experience is invaluable. And again, I've never had that resource before. It's wonderful to draw on, but Jenny has kind of very gently made it clear this is a different version. Um, it's informed by what I've learned. But to have that voice in the room and say, you know, I, I did this, this was changed, this is different now, this is the same as it always was. Uh, for her, listening to her talk about it, how the, the world wasn't ready to hear the play in 1991 when they did it, is astonishing to me. Um, and I agree with her now in, in retrospect. Uh, but I'm really glad that she's now helming the chance when the world maybe is a little better place to listen to this story and that she has the delicate hands and heart to sort of share this story with everybody. Nicely said. Now, if there was one thing that you would hope that an audience would take away from this, from your perspective, what, what would that be? I think, I said it earlier when we were sort of talking in the larger group there, it's, it's the resilience of the people. I just, I love that, despite the fact that our culture has been decimated or dismantled. Uh, the bits that have survived like beautiful wildflowers have begun to sort of grow and spread again and, and repopulate. And as an actor now, an indigenous artist, I'm really noticing a renaissance is the wrong word, but there's, there's finally being space made for indigenous artists and indigenous stories and indigenous designers. Um, and it's wonderful to sort of be building this community. Uh, so I think that's what I want us to see is that the, the communities aren't wildly different. The stories aren't wildly different. It's just the things that we focus on within the stories. The way we tell the stories are different because we don't focus on the trauma and the tragedy. We focus on the resilience of these beautiful people. Not that isn't it sad they lost these things. We want to celebrate. Isn't it amazing they're still here with what they have? Okay. Um, is there anything we haven't touched on that you feel is important that you want to share or you, you think that we need to know? I don't think so. Um, no, again, I, I, I can't express enough how unbelievable it is to work with Jenny as a director and an artist. I, I only discovered her or came across, cross paths with her a few years ago, and I thank my lucky stars for having done so. Truthfully, I sat next to her in a play workshop, and I shared my cough candies with her. And we were fast friends since then. And now every project we work together, I bring her some lemon drop cough candies to kick it off. But I, she's inspiring, she's energetic, she's passionate. She's also a, a really gifted performer, so she understands what she's asking of us. And actually, to your earlier question, that's a big thing. She understands what she's asking us to do, because we have to sing, dance, speak Cree, do vaudeville, do farcical comedy, do naturalistic text, have these huge monologues, these intimate moments, the specific choreography. I'm being stretched in a way I've never been stretched before in different directions. And she's so gentle and understanding, saying, I know I'm asking a lot of you, but you guys are doing wonderfully. So to be nurtured and supported like that, is, it's a rarity in the theatre industry, and perhaps another reason that I hope that Indigenous theatre continues to grow and thrive like it is now. JD, it was a pleasure to meet you and speak with you, and I wish you all the best, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me today.
pleasure. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Nyawa. Yeah, you may.